Hello and welcome to the Chronicle Show on Riot Radio. I'm Afaf Ghazi. And I'm Avraj Sunder. We are your hosts for today. This is our first live show of the year now. How has the process been to put this show together? It's been pretty wild. This is our first time back since April of last semester, and it's crazy how fast time moves. It's already week seven, and we're doing our first show. I think all our um, reporters have worked so hard to put together all these stories for the show today, and that's why we have some of the best stories at the Chronicle right now. Speaking of the best stories, have you ever been denied a parking pass on campus this semester, or had to pay $18 for a parking space? If yes, you're not alone. Reporter Tammy Raycraft brings us answers on the DC parking problems. And hear about a new urban farm initiative by Durham College in Ajax. And in sports, we'll hear about Durham College's golf championship as the final round of their tournament takes place today in Ajax. And the Ontario Tech men's soccer team also reached a new milestone. Have some time during reading week? We'll tell you more about that in an interesting new Indigenous showcase at the Robert McLaughlin Gallery. And finally, we're going to hear what's in your ear, Durham College. Stay tuned. Tammy Raycraft is up next with today's news. Parking continues to be a problem for many students at Durham College. Many students say they were repeatedly denied a parking pass and are being forced to pay $18 a day if they want to park on campus. I recently spoke with several students who are frustrated and left wondering how they're supposed to commute. It's a Tuesday afternoon in the Founders 2 parking lot, a lot that has the gates up and is half full. This is a sight many students see daily, a sight that makes them wonder why getting a parking pass is so hard. I did apply four times, I think, and, and two of those times I was standing at parking, applying for lots that it said on the thing were available, and I still got turned down. First-year student Tammy Francis says she's paying $90 a week to pay at the Oshawa campus instead of $320 per semester, in a lot that she says is never full. So I'm spending $18 a day, and one of the lots that I asked to be in is the lot that I park in every day and pay $18 a day to park in. Tom Lynch is the Director of Campus Safety for Durham College and Ontario Tech. 
He says there are 4,000 parking spaces and over 24,000 people that attend either Whitby or Oshawa campus on any given day. We can't. We can't physically guarantee parking when you look at those numbers. Lynch says they already oversell spots. They have sold 5,500 parking passes for the 4,000 spots available. There is a responsibility for us to, to have a single daily rate available so for that person that comes to campus once a week and doesn't want to buy a parking pass but wants to park. So we have to have some availability of single spots up for single day use. He adds that events are also held on campus and they need upward of 100 extra spots to be open. The solution for Whitby campus was to pay for 100 spots at the nearby Landmark Cinema and shuttle students to and from campus. No such solution has been found for the Oshawa campus yet. For now, the suggestion for students is to take a bus or carpool, a solution that Francis says won't work for everyone. I drive everywhere. I drive an hour and a half to get to school to start with. I'm not going to drive an hour and a half to get to Oshawa park somewhere that I'm probably going to get a ticket at, take a bus in a city that I don't know at all. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Tammy Raycraft. About 50 people met at the Rotary Global Classroom at Durham College last night for Wor World Polio Day to talk about driving polio out of existence once and for all. Grace Huizinga was there and has more on the progress that's being made. Polio first appeared in the 1950s and spread across the globe. At its worst, it led to paralysis, brain damage, and death. Since then, scientists have developed two types of vaccines that have saved millions of lives and prevented people from getting ill. Inactive polio vaccine and oral polio vaccine. Last night at Durham College, the Rotary Club of Oshawa Parkwood hosted an event to talk about eradicating the disease. David Andrews is a past president of the Rotary Club of Oshawa Parkwood and was master of ceremonies. Although polio has been eradicated in 99.9% .9 of the world, he says the world still needs to take action. The whole idea is to raise awareness that polio exists and we need everybody's help to eradicate every single child. Many Rotary members have traveled to countries where polio still exists, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Afghanistan, to give vaccines to children, including Andrews. I remember when I got my vaccination, I was probably perhaps in, high, in uh, public school, just in public school, okay? So five, six years old, believe it or not. So I remember that vaccine, but most children now are getting it even younger than that. Andrews received a service award for a polio-free world, which was presented by the Rotary Foundation. So this service award for a polio-free world was pretty special for somebody who has done nothing but create awareness to tell the world where we are. Last night alone, the Rotary Foundation received three large donations from different cities in Durham region, totaling just over $8,000. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Grace Heisinga. Experts are expecting voter turnout for this year's municipal election across Ontario to follow the trend and remain low. Why is that the case, and what more can be done? Wesley Braid spoke to a political scientist about the trend and what it will take to reverse it. Citizens of Ontario are heading to the polls this Monday to vote in the municipal election. However, the number of eligible citizens that will actually go to the polls is expected to be low. Andrea Lawler is a political science professor at King's University College at Western University in London, Ontario. 
She estimates the number to be in the 30% range. We've seen advanced polls in Toronto show decline in turnout. So that's if that's a bit of an indicator of what's coming, expect moderate turnout to low turnout. In fact, the trend has gone downwards over the past two municipal elections. In 2018, only 38% of eligible Ontarians voted, while 43% in 2014. Lawler says that teachers are a big part in making difference in educating students about the municipal government and why it matters. According to the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, cities and towns are responsible for many things in our daily lives, including public health and public transit. Lawler thinks the low number is also due to misinformation. We know we have problems right now with misinformation, disinformation, distrust of political institutions, and that does nothing to support voter turnout. So if we want to, um, if we want to engage voters, it's about addressing these issues head on. She says to engage citizens in this level of government, there are some questions that need to be asked. What do we owe to our community and what do we want, how do we express our preferences about where our community should go in the future? People can cast their votes between 10 a.m. and 8 p.m. Monday, October 24th. In Oshawa, reporting for Riot Radio, I'm Wesley Braid. A new project that will grow food for the community is underway at the corner of Harwood Avenue and Roslyn Road in Ajax. It's an urban farm in Ajax where Durham College graduates will gain experience in farming. Madison Duchin has more on the project and what it means for the community. When many people picture a farm, they may imagine rolling fields and large tractors in the middle of the countryside. In the city, it is a little different. Shane Jones teaches in the Horticulture Technician and Food and Farming program. He says urban farming looks a bit different. An urban farm, by definition, is just going to be anywhere we're going to be growing or producing food in some sort of an urban center, or I should say outside of a rural uh, setting. The urban farm will provide Durham College's horticulture graduates with the chance to test their skills and manage a small farm. They will grow foods such as rhubarb, kale, chard, and spinach. They'll also manage a hoop house, a plastic passive solar greenhouse that traps and collects sunlight. Ideally, Jones says that with the right management, they will be able to extend their growing seasons to 11 months a year. For the community, the farm will provide fresh produce and a first-hand look into how their food is grown. Our hope is that we can get community better involved with where their food comes from and understand sort of the, the logistics of how food moves around, give them greater food security. Jones hopes this farm will open the doors for more farming spaces in urban communities in Durham region. The Barrett Family Foundation donated $5 million to support the urban farm, with Durham Region providing the land. In Pickering, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Madison Duchin. It's not uncommon for students with evening classes to be in a rush. Sometimes they need to eat a meal before or grab a snack during class. Pre-pandemic, the marketplace was a common destination, but now it closes at 3.30. Brandon Clark has more about the concerns of students. Jerwin Kreskin is a student in the Human Resources Business Program. He wishes the marketplace was open longer. Give me 
because I know like some people are classes at 6 p.m. so I'd say maybe they could like keep it open until 6 so maybe yeah. just buy their food before the class and maybe eat during the class or after the class and then we'll yeah. see. However, some students say the shortened hours are forcing them to go off campus for food if they want something other than Tim Hortons. Rahul Met is a student in the Environmental Technology Program. He says students are unable to get what they want with the marketplace being closed. You know, like uh, for many of the courses, uh, the lecture timings are uh, at the late evenings, till 6, till 8. So. The marketplace closes at 3.30, although Tim Hortons is open later, but the lineup in the evening is often long. Amanda Blankhorn is a manager from Ancillary Services at Durham College. She says that although many students are back on campus, there's not enough business to stay open later. I would say that the volume of business just hasn't been there, um, but certainly, you know, this was kind of the first semester back, you know, not having as much pandemic impact as before. So certainly they're kind of assessing all of those needs right now and trying to make adjustments where they can. In offshore reporting for The Chronicle, I am Brandon Clark. Durham College has made life easier. Health officials are reminding people to get the newest vaccine as COVID deaths spike in Ontario. The province says Ontario is reporting the highest levels of COVID deaths since May. Durham College is doing its part by providing students with access to mobile vaccine clinics on campus. Deidre Clark has more on the story. Durham College has made life easier for students who want to get vaccinated. Mobile vaccine clinics have been at both campuses to encourage people to stay up to date with their booster shots and the newest bivalent vaccine. First year journalism student Ganga Rajesh is happy to have the mobile vaccine clinics. I did get a booster dose as people were saying like getting the booster dose will increase your immunity power against the COVID uh, virus variants and all and people were like it is safe, it is on the safer side to get the booster dose you know as early as possible. With students in person again, students are encouraged to get vaccines so they won't have to take time away from classes. Yeah, I do feel comfortable because, uh, you know, it's not a simple game or something. It is a deadly disease, right? And people have lost their lives and getting vaccinated or getting a booster dose means you can like Decrease your risk. The mobile clinic will be back on Oshawa campus on November 22nd between 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. In Ajax, reporting for The Chronicle, I am Deidre Clark. Across the country, colleges and universities are making the push to include Indigenous education in their curricula with the help of Indigenous communities. Durham College has started its own push to become more inclusive to Indigenous peoples and it appears they may have more in store for the future students. Jacob Hallis has the story. Last year, in an effort to indigenize the curriculum, Durham College began the process of making online indigenous electives mandatory for certain programs. And now that pandemic restrictions have been lifted and students are back in classrooms, some want the same in-person experience for the indigenous material. Practical nursing student Christy Brooks is one of them. I actually prefer it to be in person. I don't really like it that it's online. You know, there's nowhere to meet with people you don't get to meet your instructor and i actually like to participate in live discussions other than just posting a discussion piece online 
But for some graduates, the material they learned has helped them in their careers, despite being online. Alex Cairns of TSN's The Shift said the content has helped her on her path to where she is now. I learned more in that, you know, was it 12-week course than I had learned about Indigenous history in my entire life. And it honestly set me on a path to kind of do the work that I'm doing now, which maybe doesn't sound like it makes sense because I work in sports, but the foundation from where I work from has everything to do with the things that I learned in that course. There is good news for future students. Vice President of Academics, Elaine Pop has confirmed talks are underway to make some of these courses in person. There is interest yeah. to bring some of those courses, maybe not all four um, of them to be uh, an in-person delivery, but those discussions are ongoing. Right now, students in 34 courses across five faculties must take at least one Indigenous course during their program. As part of its calls to action, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission called on post-secondary schools to fill gaps in knowledge about the cultural genocide of Indigenous peoples in Canada. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Jacob Paulus. In the UK, speculation is growing over who will replace Prime Minister Liz Truss, who announced her resignation yesterday, just over six weeks after becoming Conservative Party leader. That makes her the shortest reigning PM in Britain's history. There are reports that more than 50 Conservative MPs have pledged support for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Candidates need at least 100 nominations from fellow Tory MPs to get on the ballot, meaning no more than three of them will be able to stand because there are 357 Tory MPs. In her short tenure, the pound crashed, the Queen died, the Bank of England was forced to buy up government bonds, and she had the worst approval rating of any Prime Minister ever. Her replacement is expected by late next week. The Ontario government is giving First Nation communities $25 million over the next three years to boost economic development. The goal is to help First Nations communities recover from the COVID-19 pandemic by modernizing business practices and removing barriers for Indigenous people looking to get into apprenticeship programs. The funding will be split between five areas, low interest loans, e-commerce, issues with Indigenous supply chains, economic development training, and reducing financial barriers. The funding comes as part of the Ontario government's commitment to reconciliation. As the weather cools and leaves change colors, many people go out on the weekends to farmers markets for produce and family fun. Fall and the harvest season remind us about where our food comes from. But what does the future of buying locally grown crops look like? And what does it mean for our own futures? Katie Sampson met up with farmers and some of the people in agriculture industry to find out more. It's a cool and sunny Sunday morning and families are out at Nature's Bounty Farm, north of Whitby, picking apples. According to the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs, 46% of Ontario residents say they made an effort to purchase locally grown foods in 2021. Kelly Seizeren is the general manager for the Ontario Apple Growers. She says, during the pandemic, local farms and orchards provided food and activities residents could rely on. It's supporting our own economy, supporting your neighbours and the people that work here in, in the province. But as things slowly get back to normal, will the shop local trend continue, specifically when it comes to Ontario Grown? I think during the pandemic that 
shop local trend was just accelerated. General Manager of Nature's Bounty Farm in Scugog and Chair of Durham Farm Fresh, Rob Alexander, says people seem to be willing to spend a little extra on their produce to buy from local farms. But the future of farming in Ontario is uncertain. Alexander says that the province is home to some of the best growing soils in the world, but the bigger issue of housing is taking a toll on farms. You know, I live in South Whitby. I drive north to work and I watch almost daily, but over the course of months, field after field being taken out of uh, agricultural production because there is such a demand for housing and developers know that they can make farmers offers that they can't refuse. Buying Ontario grown has more impact than just land development. If we continue to just expect cheap food all the time, then it's only ever going to come from places with lower environmental standards, lower human rights standards, labor standards, safety standards, and the list goes on. In Scugog, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Katie Sampson. It's almost reading week, and as soon as everyone gets back to school, it will be Halloween. Grace Heisinga walked around campus to find out what everyone's planning on wearing. Uh, I'm a Playboy bunny. Patrick Bateman. Hooters girl. It's going to be a pirate. Fembot from Austin Powers. Up next, we have Ryan Vieira with sports.
sports news. Durham College's top golfers are in the final round of the National College Golf Championships today. The 2022 Canadian College's Athletic Association's Championship is being hosted at Deer Creek Golf Course in Ajax. Today is the fourth and final round of the tournament, and Matt Billington is leading the way for the Lords, sitting at 29th place out of 70 participants. I was at the course yesterday to talk to the players and find out what it means for the Lords to host and compete in this tournament. The Lords golf team wraps up their season with the final round of the national championship today. Third-year team member Cam Lyon is proud that the tournament is being hosted in Durham Region. It's nice hosting because you're, I mean, you're home, right? So you got friends and family that, that can come and watch. Despite being home for the tournament, things haven't gone as well for the six Lords golfers as they had hoped. While Matt Billington is leading the way for the team, he is far behind the leaders representing other colleges on the leaderboard. My ball striking has not been perfect. Wow. When we were playing provincials, I was hitting the ball a lot better. Now that the tournament is almost behind them, the Lords will have to move on into a new season next fall without Lyon or Devin Fraser, who graduate this year. Fraser played on both the volleyball and golf teams. Well, I'm in my sixth year and uh, I have no more eligibility for volleyball, so I will not be coming back. Obviously, I'd be um, more than happy to, to play again, but um, as of now, it's my last year um, of school. However, Billington, Chase Plain, Brian Waters and Julian Harivnok are all closing out their first years, so could be back to play for the Lords again next season. In Ajax, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Ryan Vieira. The Durham Lords men's basketball team closed out its preseason campaign on Tuesday with a narrow win over the Sheridan Bruins. This game follows an impressive showing from the Lords last weekend, where they were crowned the champions of the David Stewart tip-off tournament. Durham's regular season tips off this Wednesday as they face off against the Georgian Grizzlies in Barrie. Daniel Harris called this a get-back game after losing to the Grizzlies in the qualifying game last year. A lot of us got bitter about how, um, how, how uh, the season ended last year against, against Georgia. And, um, you know, it's a little bit of a rivalry with them. They're a great team, you know, and so getting a first win of the regular season against them is going to be huge for us, you know, moving forward. The 2022 Ontario Tech men's soccer team has reached an impressive milestone this season. Luke Mandato spoke with members of the squad to find out just how important this season has been and what this achievement means for the team. The Ridgebacks men's soccer team has been flying lately. 11 matches played, 10 wins, and first place in their division heading into the final game of the regular season. Among all of the accolades, there's one that stands out above the rest. The men's team has been nationally ranked for the first time in school history, with the squad reaching as high as sixth in Canada and currently sitting at seventh place. Head coach Raman Mohammadi says the ranking was something he had been hoping his team could achieve for a long time. It was one of our goals that what can we do to be part of that, that list of the university team in youth sport and we did again since 2019 we we worked very hard and our goal was to be successful to be at playoff to be at final four the overseeing body for university sports in canada u sports originally determined based on media panels and votes from coaches since 2018 the rankings have been determined solely on stats making their rank all the more impressive for the ridgebacks 
What's been the key to success? Team captain Jacob Begley says not falling into trap games has worked for the team this season. Most people think that means more pressure, but personally, I just it's just another game. Um, I treated it the same way if we're playing Carleton or we're playing a team that isn't ranked. The Ridgebacks will wrap up their record-setting regular season on Saturday when they face the Lakers in Nipissing. Mohamedy says regardless of the result, he is proud of this squad. Honestly, it's a privilege to be with these 25 kids and day in, day out, doesn't matter what, what the situation is, they come out and they put the work on and they see. And I'm so proud that, especially for our graduating this year, Hopefully they see when they get what they deserve before they graduate. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Luke Mandato. The Durham Lords are hosting the Women's Provincial Soccer Championships next week. The 2022 Ontario Colleges Athletic Association Championships take place at Vesos Field. The Lords are looking to get back on the podium for the first time since their bronze medal win in 2018. Durham College had a 9-3 and 1 record heading into the playoffs. The tournament be- begins from October 27th until October 30th and the schedules will be finalized once games are played this weekend. The Oshawa Generals are back in action this weekend. They'll head to Guelph tonight to take on the Storm and return home for Sunday to host the Kingston Frontenacs. The Gens have a new player on board, Ryder McIntyre, a forward who was acquired yesterday from the Sarnia Sting in exchange for Cooper Way and a 2025 8th round draft pick. The Generals currently hold a record of three wins, three regulation losses, and one overtime loss. They'll look to improve that record this weekend. All games will be available on Rogers TV. It's exactly one month until the FIFA World Cup opens in Qatar. Hafed Al-Madani spoke with two Durham residents who shared their journey from scoring tickets to heading overseas to support Canada. Bowmanville resident Matthew Gregg was there when Canada qualified for the World Cup after defeating Jamaica. Now he's on his way to Qatar. The sous chef secured tickets by applying early. FIFA released tickets in three phases. He was lucky enough to get in during the second phase on the first ballot. Canada was pretty easy too. Um, yeah, I got in the first ballot right away i got all three group stage matches durham region police officer david swade will also be among the estimated one million fans in cutter when the tournament opens in late november surprisingly getting the tickets was the easy part for him since he's part of canada's soccer supporters group the voyagers it gave me a higher likelihood of get, getting tickets so i ended up buying what's called a t4 for my canada games which means i got See all three Canada games. Greg is looking forward to feeling the atmosphere inside the stadium. Like I used to go to games with my dad, like whether it was like soccer or Blue Jays, even whatever. Um, it's that when you get in that tournament or sorry, when you get in the stadium and you're on the concourse and you get to the tunnels where you can see out in the stadium, that vibe, that buzz is like adrenaline. That is the greatest feeling in the entire world. But of course, the exciting part is seeing Canada play. Swain is dreaming of seeing Canada score. To see Canada score a goal at the World Cup to me is is what all the money that I've spent or, or time off is going to be, that will be the icing. So too would seeing iconic players Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi play since it could be their final World Cup. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Hafed Almadani. And that's all we have for sports today. Coming up next, Madison Duchin will have arts, so stay tuned.
Hi, I'm Madison, and this is Arts and Culture. Are you looking for something to do over Reading Week? The Robert McLaughlin Gallery is offering a free Indigenous Creative Arts Showcase. Local Indigenous artists will share poetry, music, and dance. The event runs from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. next Thursday. Saturdays are often hanging out, students are often hanging out around campus listening to music. Whether it's enjoying their lunch, waiting for the bus, or studying with friends, Hafed Almadani and Luke Mandato went around campus and asked students, what's in your ear? I'm listening to Daydream by Youth Lagoon. Thought it was a drill by future. Like when you're telling the truth, I'd rather be realer than you. Gloria by Laura Brannigan. Uh, Second Sight Seer by Will Wood. Wake Up by Freddie's Grace. Taylor Swift finally released her highly anticipated album Midnights at Midnight. This marks her first new release since her 2020 album Evermore. Swift describes the 13-track album as a concept album about, quote, a journey through terrors and sweet dreams and 13 sleepless nights of her life. And that's all for arts. Here now is Taylor Swift with her first single from Midnight's Anti-Hero. Always rooting for the 
Drift. The feature film Stay the Night was voted the People's Choice Award winner earlier this month at the Durham Region International Film Festival. Toronto native Renika Jayapalan wrote and directed the movie. I recently sat down with her to talk about her film and her journey through filmmaking. Here's our conversation. Just to begin, let's talk about a little about your background. When did you know filmmaking was what you wanted to do as a career? Um... I think I always loved movies from a kid. I used to watch old movies with my dad on TV, um, but I was going to be a doctor. So I went to, to university for um, pre-med, like biochemistry. And I honestly wanted to be a doctor, but I always loved movies. In the second year, I took a film elective class. And um, the second film we watched in, in that class was The Godfather, which I had seen with my dad when I was a kid. But the professor started to analyze a particular scene in The Godfather and it kind of broke open what filmmaking and the craft of cinema and storytelling um, for the screen was. And I realized then that like, oh, I love that. Um, I can do that and now I have to do that. So that's kind of what changed for me. But I finished my degree in biochem and then I went to uh, night school for to learn how to like use a camera and to film stuff and then uh, went to the Canadian Film Center, um, and that really changed my life. But I knew nobody in the industry, no one in my family, no friends, no no one. And so it was kind of like figuring it out on my own. Right. So before your solo feature debut, Stay the Night, what sort of roles did you take on in the film industry? I've never worked in the industry as anything but a writer and director. And that's because I was um, a snob. I got to, you know, I went to the Canadian Film Center and uh, which was an amazing experience. I got to make a short film there that did really well for me. Um, and I wrote and directed that film and it did, you know, went to all the festivals, it won Best Short at TIFF, it went to Berlin, it went to Tribeca, it went all over the place. And I was like, you know what, I'm not gonna make my feature and I wanna write and direct it and I'm not gonna work in the industry as anything but um, a writer and director. And so I got a day job and would write my scripts on the side and that's how I kind of carved out my way. And I've never worked in the industry as anything but um, a writer or a director. Right, so about your first feature, tell us about it, like Stay the Night. What was the process like filming it? How'd you guys work through COVID? Tell us about the plot. Yeah, so Stay the Night is a, uh, a romance and it's, uh, it's about, the short pitch is that it's about a one night stand that turns into something more meaningful. Um, and it focuses on Grace, who is a young woman who works in HR. 
and she doesn't get a promotion that she thought she deserved um, because she's more reserved as her boss says, or she's, um, yeah, she's not as social and out there. So she's, she decides that night, you know, whatever, I'm going to go have a one night stand and just like get this out of my system. And she meets a guy named Carter Stone who happens to be um, an NHL um, hockey player and he has a problem of his own and they kind of spend the night sort of getting to know each other and helping each other with their problems. Um, so that's how what the movie's about. Um, and it was sort of a, a micro budget film that we first shot over 15 days in 2019, March. And we did the edit and then we um, wanted to do some pickups and some reshoots. And we scheduled that for March, 2020. And we all know what happened in March, 2020. We got three out of our four days um, shoot in and then we were shut down because of COVID. So we had to wait another full year because of cast availability and what have you and COVID rules to shoot our last final day um, in March, 2021. And then March, 2022, another March, we premiered at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. So it was a, it was a long process to make the movie to shoot it. And, uh, but uh, it gave us a lot of time, which was actually our friend here to make it better and better. So I think like local films and like Canadian films is something that DC students and just students around Canada really care about. And your film premiered at Drift and you actually won the People's Choice Award. So what was that feeling like winning the Choice Award? How'd you react? Oh, it's so nice. I mean, even the screening, because we, we got to open that festival, was so warm and well attended. Like, you you know, we make Canadian, like, we make our movies and it's so hard to make them just because of all of the, you know, funding and access and all of these reasons. But then the really heartbreaking thing is that we make them and then there's no one sees them. There's no there's no venue for our films. You know, if, if a little Canadian film gets a distributor, amazing. But then even to get to a theater, um, we're competing with Marvel films. We're competing with all these Hollywood blockbusters. Just, you know, we're competing with Top Gun, who's been in the theater for seven months already. We can't, you know, you can't get a your, your film in a theater because that, that film's still playing. But um, so, so festivals are great because you get to actually access an audience um, and a film loving audience. So it was it was really nice to to have it um, screen at Drift and for the audience to be so engaged and to react to it. We, I mean, filmmakers, we make movies so that people can see them, not just for ourselves, you know, for so people can connect to the material and and enjoy them or learn something or feel something. So do you have any advice for young, hopeful up and coming filmmakers? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not sort of groundbreaking advice, but it's just like keep doing it. Keep figuring out what your voice is as a storyteller, as a filmmaker. Um, don't try to sort of mimic or copy someone else. Um, what's what are the stories that you want to tell? What's unique about you and your voice? And then then just keep practicing, keep doing it, keep shooting, keep writing, um, get your name out there. If things aren't working in one avenue, try plan B, try plan C, have all those plans at the same time. Um, try television, try shorts, try web series, just keep doing it. And at some point you're going to get that break. I mean, that's what happened to me. 
right. Well, thanks for your words. Thank you for your time. That was my conversation with Renika Jayapalan to discuss her film Stay the Night. The movie will be released in Ottawa, Toronto, and Vancouver on November 18th. Toronto-based Bamtone has created more than 3,500 tracks which have been featured on acclaimed TV shows such as Modern Family, Shameless, Riverdale, and other independent films and commercials. The French Acadian from Nova Scotia and a graduate from the Percussion Institute of Technology in Hollywood is a multi-instrumentalist and vocalist whose music continues to achieve international success. Bamtone's song Moonlight appears in the trailer for Stay the Night. Here's Moonlight. and Durham Region are hoping to raise awareness about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the media event next month. Voices in Journalism is a city studio project, a collaboration between the college and the region aimed at giving students an experiential learning opportunity while also developing civic engagement. 
Jacob Pallas and Tammy Raycraft have worked together with Canadian journalists to make an Indigenous Voices in Journalism panel and a Women in Journalism panel. Jacob and Tammy are here with us to tell us more about the event and why it is important. Hi guys. How you Hello. Doing? You are each producing um, and hosting a panel. Let's start with Indigenous Voices. So let, tell us about this and why it is important. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to be discussing the differences between indigenizing and decolonizing our media schools and institutions and uh, trying to figure out which is the best best path forward for not only indigenous people but the country as a whole um, it's a discussion that is mostly on social media but since the conclusion of the trc in 2015 um, and the mass graves that are being found on the formal residential school sites that's not going to be stopping anytime soon um, it's a discussion that needs to be happening in all areas of the country, not just solely in media and schools. For sure. Tell us about your guests. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to be hearing from Melissa Ridgen, who is accepting a new role at Global News uh, to help indigenize the publication. And it's the first time that somebody's held that role. How do we live here together? We're going to have to. And, and people have to start making amends or reconciling, whichever word you wanted to use, for you get to be on this land and you and you benefit from living in this country. And these people over here have been screwed over so you can have a good life. Um, we're also gonna be hearing from Michael Dick of CBC Radio, who is the managing editor for their indigenous unit, which over the past few years has grown exponentially. So, you know, the, you were seeing the expansion of that, which is, which is really good. And, and uh, you know, I'd also say too, in, in leadership, you know, there's, there's more senior people uh, at CBC who are Indigenous like myself, you know, in, in senior roles. And, um, you know, I think having an, having a voice and seat at the table is, is, is important. And we're also going to be hearing from Sean McLeod, who's a recent graduate of Durham College and is currently at Ontario Tech. To me, that's the core of what Indigenize is. is it's, it's not taking something like Indigenous culture and then placing it into like everyday life, but it's putting voices of Indigenous people in places where there's power and, you know, getting our voices heard in that way. What should listeners expect to hear when they tune in? Uh, hopefully some good in-depth banter mixed with the good old Indigenous humor. But the goal of the panel is to get this idea stuck in people's heads so that as they move forward with their lives and in their careers, it's something that they're going to be able to speak to, uh, or at least speak to these situations in their own workplaces or any future education, should they ever be confronted by them. Uh, but this isn't just for Indigenous people, it's for the non-Indig as well. Um, we all live in this beautiful country and nobody is going anywhere anytime soon. Sounds like a great discussion. I'm looking forward to it. So for our second panel, um, we have women in journalism. Tammy, who are our guests for this one? We have three amazing guests speaking at the women in journalism panel. First, we have producer and co-host for the Toronto Star's daily podcast, This Matters, Saba Adezez. She escaped to Canada from Pakistan where her life was in danger because of her work. Noor Ibrahim is a graduate of the journalism program at Durham College and is now the morning news anchor and co-host of Global News Peterborough. And Julie Shibawale is the Western Director for the Canadian Association for Black Journalists. She's a freelance journalist and a lawyer. Amazing. Um, tell us what this panel is going to focus on. The major topic at hand is the harassment and the threats of violence, rape and even death that female journalists face. 
More than 70% of female and non-gender conforming journalists asked in a 2019 survey said they've experienced safety issues in Canada and the U.S. Females are three times more likely to face harassment than their male counterparts. Adazaz said she's been under attack here in Canada, the place where she believed she would be safe. I started receiving like a number of emails, um, which I've shared on social media as well. They are vile. Um, they're not just misogynist. Um, they're also Islamophobic. They're racist. They're like some of the most visceral raw hatred that you can come across verbally that can feel almost physical. These threats are not always taken seriously, and Adazaz and other journalists are working together to help change that. Um, there was a very specific conversation about having a list of our faces painted on a wall. There were very graphic rape and death threats in it. Um, so that's why it got shared simultaneously like from all of our inboxes, because you were like, enough is enough. We need to collaborate on this, and we need to get our newsrooms to understand that this is not an isolated newsroom to newsroom situation they need to join forces to get some policy changes done wow so how can they change that these threats are a very real thing and sometimes the problem comes from within as executives and journalism are often male dominated ibrahim says both need to be talked about uh, barriers say for example you know journalists can female journalists can get jobs but they can't get leadership roles because leadership roles are tend to be male dominated in the industry um but we can also talk about the barriers that they face outside of, you know, their direct newsroom, where, as you said, it's harassment, it's bullying. It's kind of like there's a target on their back because of their gender. It is as agrees and says that some of the problem is that males in the industry don't understand how much impact these threats can have. And I think it's a structural issue when you have like a majority, um, you know, male, white dominated sort of executive stakeholder, uh, you know, uh, a composition they can try to understand the issue but it's really outside of the frame of their experience they don't really understand necessarily or have experienced enough of it or understand what it's like to be a vulnerable imperiled journalist who's getting something like that and what it feels like to know that there's no help coming and that you're in danger for your life how does the intersectionality of race and gender play into this the panelists all agree that there is a link between racism and sexism when it comes to these threats, and they all agree that more needs to be done. Shobawale says more journalists need to come together. The high-profile journalists that we know, some have spoken out about this, some have not. And, and as an industry, we still haven't really closed ranks around this and said, you know what, we don't accept this. It sounds like there's a lot to talk about here. So when is this event happening and where? The Voices and Journalism panels take place on November 1st from 3 to 5 p.m. People can attend in person, in the global classroom, or online. Perfect. Thank you so much for speaking with me, and we will see you on November 1st. Thank you. The weather is beautiful today with a light breeze and the sun shining on your face. This week in Durham region, expect six days of sun with a possibility of a few showers on Tuesday. The temperature is currently 10 degrees and will increase by two later tonight. Enjoy the sunny reading week while the temperature stays between 15 and 17 degrees. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Sophia Abbasi. With this sunny weather coming up, Afaf, what are your plans for reading week? As much as I'd like to say that I'm going to enjoy the sun, I have a lot of um, assignments and work to catch up on, so that's pretty much what the week is going to consist of. What about you, Nav? Same thing. I 
told myself I would do all these assignments during reading week. Now I've given myself a million things to do. For sure, yeah. Hopefully we'll spend some time with our family and enjoy the sun if we can. But anyways, thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at DCUIT Chronicle and visit our website, chronicle.durhamcollege.ca to read our stories. And now, to close our show, here's the Oshawa band, the Doozies, an all-string trio of stand-up bass guitar and fiddle. Here is their 2019 single, 26 Ounce. Twenty-six ounces, thirteen drinks. Twenty-six ounces, thirteen drinks. Fill them up, gather rounds, fill a little when you clean. Twenty-six ounces, thirteen drinks. Five stools, one bar. Five stools, one bar. No big screen TVs, just this crappy old guitar. Twenty-six ounces, thirteen drinks.